You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. It's a sunny day out here in Northern California. I'm here with my director, and you're going to laugh, Teddy Bear, and my assistant director, Biscuit. And they're my two ragamuffin kitties, but they love to be in here when we're on the radio. They're curled up on their director chair, blankets, and they slept all night, and they woke up for breakfast, and now they're supposedly going to direct this program. But I'm not holding my breath because they went back to sleep. Have you ever noticed that cats and dogs have no trouble going to sleep? I'm so jealous. But it's true, and I've studied them. It's my observation that dogs tend to sleep when they're bored or when they're tired. And then when the mailman or lady comes, your fur baby is all alert and going to do his protection job. On the other hand, I've been studying teddy bear and biscuity bear and their sleep habits, and I must say, I'm jealous. I don't know if you're like me, but when I get home from work around 9 p.m., yes, 9 p.m., I'm all alert from the day, and it takes me a while to calm down and quiet my brain. But my kitties, they can sleep through anything. When their interest is peaked, they may or may not investigate depending on their mood. I just find this fascinating. If there's no interest, they go back to sleep, accompanied by purrs and stretching. And boy, do I wish I could do this. I have so many patients who cannot even imagine what it would be like to embrace sleep like teddy bear and biscuity bear. Sleep challenges for humans are common, by the way. Many of my patients seem to suffer from a racing mind wherein they recount all the things they forgot to do or the things they have to do tomorrow. Some of them have difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep throughout the night. Others have sleep apnea in which they experience abnormal patterns in breathing while they're asleep. There are many other aspects of sleep challenges and none of them affect how teddy bear and biscuity bear sleep. I'm so jealous, as I said. And if you're having challenges with sleep, we have to help for you. Yes, we do. Um, we have our guest today who has so much experience with this issue, and she is a psychologist, and Dr. Bergstrom received her degree from what's called PGSP, which is the Stanford Consortium, and obtained her clinical and research training at the Veterans Administration Healthcare System and at Stanford University. Dr. Bergstrom, welcome to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. And before we get into the area of insomnia, I know you have other specialties. Would you tell us what they are? Yes, hello, and thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm uh, always happy to spread the knowledge about sleep. So, yes, so aside from insomnia and my other specialties, 
include the treatment of PTSD, which stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. Also, uh, the treatment of psychosis, uh, depression, and chronic pain. So PTSD, aside from insomnia, I have to say, is very near and dear to my heart. And in fact, my dissertation topic was looking at marital functioning among veterans of trauma. So, and then the treatment of psychosis has also been one where I was able to have the opportunity to actually co-write a, um, a therapy-based curriculum with a former supervisor of mine, Dr. Uh, Michelle Soleil, and the curriculum has actually now been recognized by a major HMO-based medical center in Northern California um, to be used as standard of practice by all mental health clinics within that HMO region. Well, those are a lot of accomplishments, and I did not <laughs> realize you were an expert in chronic pain, so I'm <laughs> going to try to have you back because I know so many people, my patients and friends, who suffer from chronic pain. So that will be a very yeah. interesting topic if, if you can fit it into your schedule. Absolutely. So, I love it. Good. So why did you become interested in sleep issues? <laughs> So with the various areas of work I was involved with, working with my patients, there was a very common theme that showed itself across all the areas, and that was an issue around sleep. And whether it was the folks I've been treating for PTSD, psychosis, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, memory issues, sleep is in sleep was in one way or another always related. So I became really interested in learning more about that relationship, and so I decided to pursue that area of insomnia and learn how to treat it. Uh, I wanted to know essentially the whys and hows behind sleep impacting so many things, not just for our mental health patients, but for all of us in general. I'm so glad you did that because you're going to share a lot of stuff with our guests, uh, with our listeners today. And sleep is so vital to our health. And I think that many of us don't even realize that because I know when I can't mm-hmm. sleep, I get up and go and do a nine-hour day. But why mm-hmm. is it that sleep is vital to our health? Sleep plays a major role in major domains in our lives. It impacts things like our emotion regulation, our mental health, immune system, our reproduction system, our ability to resist impulsive behaviors, our physical and mental healing, our processing speed, uh, our ability to pay attention, to learn new information, to process and remember that information, and then to be able to apply it to already existing pieces of information we have. And so, as such, there's vulnerabilities and risk factors associated um, with chronic untreated insomnia. And that actually includes things like cancer, Alzheimer's disease, depression, anxiety, psychosis, weight gain, obesity, diabetes, um, high blood pressure, um, and chronic pain pain flare-ups. So a lot is happening as a result of untreated um, insomnia. You know what? As I sit here listening to you, that's a little well, actually, not a little. That's big scary to me. It is. Um, so many of us just get up and go to work, and we think to ourselves, okay, well, I got three hours, big deal. I can do it. And then right. it's repeated. I'm curious about what's considered the right amount of sleep to have each night. Oh, so that's a tough one. So 
there's conflicting research about how much sleep we actually need. And it does, of course, depend on your age, your lifestyle, stress level, your health. But some studies have indicated, you know, a minimal of six hours being the necessary time, where other studies actually show, well, it's more like eight or nine. Um, ultimately, I believe everybody is different in terms of what they personally need. We know our bodies enough to be the ones to determine what makes the most sense and what feels right. But something to keep in mind is that a lot happens within what we call a sleep cycle. And in a minute, I think we'll go into more detail about that, but a typical sleep cycle is 90 minutes long, and during that 90-minute time frame, a lot is happening in our physical and mental restoration. So regardless, I do see that people tend to overestimate the amount of sleep they actually need. And so what happens is, you know, we work ourselves up in catastrophizing, you know, that the next day is going to be ruined, that we're going to blow that presentation at work, we'll feel crummy all day, and having zero energy. But the truth is we don't actually need as much sleep as we think. And yes, you will have doubts during the day if you're tired. You definitely won't be 100%, but our bodies actually can handle it. And, you know, you may find yourself having those bursts of energy intermittently throughout the day, and you may even surprise yourself at the end of that day and reflect back and say, huh, I actually wasn't that tired, and I accomplished more than I thought. And so this corrective experience can then help ease that sleep performance anxiety um, and you can go through that effectively. Hmm. Sleep anxiety. I mean, I want to come back to that because that's an interesting yeah. topic. Like, like sort of like, what happens if I can't go to sleep because <laughs> you put your head on the pillow? That Definitely. Was, <laughs> yeah, that's sort of like, let's go to bed and worry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Often, yeah, I've often said to my patients, if you're worried affects anything in a positive way, let me know. I'll stop what I'm doing, what I'm doing and I'll worry with you. <laughs> I so, love that. <laughs> yeah, so worrying about going to sleep is not going to get you what you need to do um, in mm-hmm. order to get that to sleep. Now, right, and I, I've heard yeah. a lot about REM sleep, R-E-M, and that's supposedly the most important type of sleep to have Can you explain REM sleep to us and why it is so necessary? Sure. So REM stands for rapid eye movement. So, and actually all stages of sleep are equally valuable because each stage does something unique from the other. So as I mentioned before, a sleep cycle is approximately 90 minutes long. So in that 90-minute sleep cycle, we go into various stages. We go into stage one, stage two, stage three, four, and then run sleep. Another way and folks first refer to them, I'm going to stop you because I'm going to I'm going to ask you to put your microphone closer, so because you you sound um, close and then distant and close and distant, and I want our listeners to hear everything you have to say. Perfect. Yes, lots of good information. Okay. Hopefully, this is better. Yes, that's better. Okay, so um, talking about the stages of sleep, another way we refer to these stages is to separate them into what's called non-REM sleep, and then REM sleep. So stage one to four increase the depth quality of sleep, so meaning stages three and four are the deepest stages of sleep, and stage one is the lightest amount of sleep. And so the way I describe this is that instance when, you know, maybe you're sitting on the couch at night 
with your spouse or with a friend watching a movie, and all of a sudden you get an elbow nudge, and you're being told to wake up, you're snoring. Um, and then you say to them, what are you talking about? I wasn't, I wasn't awake this whole time. Actually, you were likely in stage one sleep, and you didn't even realize it. That's how light stage one sleep is. Another notable experience and the importance of stage one um, is the process of what's called a hypnic jerk. And so that's the sensation um, that you may experience like you're falling, right? So um, it's actually quite normal and occurs as a result of your mind trying to relax your body enough to fall into those deeper stages of sleep. So um, the deeper stages of sleep are stage three and four, and that's where most of the physical restoration of the body is occurring. So like tissue and muscle repair, your immune system is being repaired, it's all occurring during those stages. And so coming to REM sleep, um, this proceeds after the non-REM stages. And so this is also, REM sleep is also described as paradoxical sleep because if we were to actually look at your brain uh, activity, like brain waves during, during that REM sleep, it would look very similar to the activity of an awake brain. And so the function of REM sleep, the importance is to help integrate the emotions and learning earlier that day into more complex systems. We are coming up on a hard break, and we're going to come back, listeners, with Dr. Jessica Bergstrom talking about sleep, all kinds of sleep, but REM sleep, and we will be back in about two minutes. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. listeners to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. We are here talking with Dr. Jessica Bergstrom, who works at a nationally renowned HMO, and we are talking about sleep and sleep problems, and we were 
talking about REM sleep, and I'm wondering, Dr. Bergstrom, can you just review that a little bit? We've got to different stages of sleep, and then I'm going to ask you a question. Definitely. So I'll review the stages, and then I'll go into a little bit more information about why REM sleep is so important. So, you know, we talked about the 90-minute cycle uh, categorized into either non-REM sleep or REM sleep. And so each cycle, one, two, three, four, REM, has different uh, responsibilities separate from the other. And so going into REM sleep and why it's important, in terms of memory, sleep helps prepare by making room to make new memories. It also functions to internalize and maintain the memories and information you learned that day and then to retrieve memories that you couldn't necessarily remember before and also to apply and store new memories with that already existing knowledge. So this is called memory consolidation. So basically the wake state receives memories the non-REM stages store and strengthen those memories, and then REM integrates and connects those memories with already learned memories. So it makes sense then that during REM sleep we dream. And yes, all of us dream. In fact, most of it occurring during REM. So it's just really a matter of whether you're actually remembering the dream. Um, And if you're remembering the dream, it's likely because you've woken up out of REM sleep. Interesting. Now, did these happen in a linear form, like stage one, stage two, stage three, REM sleep, or do, or do they get mixed up? So a typical profile would be stage one, two, three, four, three, two, one, REM, right? And the interesting thing is the first part, the first half of a person's night, you're actually receiving more stage non-REM sleep, so more of that physical restoration, and then the second part of your night sleep is more REM. Hmm. Now, what if you get like three hours of sleep? What so this is the interesting thing. Scenario? Yeah, so this is the interesting thing. So again, it's 90 minutes long, a sleep cycle. So if it's three hours, you technically received two sleep cycles worth. Um, not ideal, of course. But, you know, a lot is going on within one cycle of 90 minutes. So I think that can be a helpful thing to tell yourself that, okay, last night was only three hours, but I received two full cycles of sleep. There's a lot of restoration that occurred um, and that my body can handle it. Okay. Well, um, would you tell us about insomnia? Because a lot of my patients have insomnia and How would you describe it for our listeners? Right. So to officially describe it, insomnia is a specific type of sleep disorder that's defined as trouble with sleep quantity or quality uh, due to difficulties with falling asleep, staying asleep, and then as well as early awakenings, so waking up earlier than intended. Um, and, And this causes significant distress or impairment in functioning. And for it to be labeled chronic insomnia, it has to occur at least three times per week and then last for about three months. So there's actually a couple types of insomnia. There's primary insomnia, which essentially means there's no other medical or mental health condition causing the sleep disturbance. 
versus what's called secondary insomnia. So secondary insomnia means there's something medical or mental going on behind it that's causing the insomnia. So examples of this could be, as you mentioned earlier, like sleep apnea, PTSD, asthma, uh, uh, you know, things like that, um, menopause, right? Yeah, chronic pain. Menopause is a good one, too. Um, and so if this is the case, these ailments need to be addressed first, and usually over time, if you address these things, if you treat them properly, then the insomnia resolves kind of naturally. Wow. Well, this is problematical for so many folks, and as we get on into our interview, I'm going to ask you about curative things, but maybe you could tell us why people have difficulty falling asleep, and I'll just say, for me, I get home late, and my mind is going, and the idea of going right to sleep is like, no, I just can't do that. I'm thinking of what happened during the day, what I need to do, but I'm wondering why other folks have difficulty. Yeah, and I'll go into what you just mentioned in a little bit, but there really can be a lot of reasons in causing difficulties with falling asleep, and some of the biggest culprits I find are trying to go to bed too early than what the body actually needs. We have this false idea that we need to have a set bedtime when really what's important is that we go to bed when we're actually tired, not because it's just 10 o'clock and you need your eight hours. Um, another common reason why people can't fall asleep is because, and this is what you were referring to, they don't give themselves enough time between their busy day and bedtime. And so I call this the buffer zone. So folks are so busy coming home from work or the gym, you know, immediately going into dinner and cleaning mode, getting the kiddos off to bed, and really have no time left to decompress and allow the brain and body to unwind and prepare for sleep. Um, And then lastly, the other common reason that I find is there's just too much caffeine in the body. Um, You know, and I guess other things are too long of naps earlier in the day, you know, medical conditions, too much anxiety and worry. Um, And then what's being talked about a lot lately is exposure to LED lights on our screens at night at home. Oh, so you mean people who get in there and do their stuff on their cell phones or whatever it is, um, they are having that exposure and that can interrupt their sleep cycle. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I'll go more into that in a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I know tons of people who do that, including myself, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to divulge too much personal information. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, it's so easy, it's so readily available, you know, and it it does play a huge part. People don't realize the huge impact, um, you know, when light from those electronics enter our eyes, and it's specifically the blue or the white shades of light, which inconveniently are from our laptops and our iPads, our phones, our brain actually, when it receives this light, it falsely assumes that it's time to wake up and stop producing melatonin. And some people have such a sensitivity to this light that it can actually take them two hours to be able to fall asleep or go back to sleep. That is really important information because I think with the new video and iPhone uh, addiction that's now been recognized, that we Mm -hmm. get addicted to doing this, 
I have this little game that I play on my cell phone, and I've got to stop that because I think it's relaxing. And mm-hmm. I tell myself, oh, yeah, I'm going to calm down and just relax with this little word game. And that um, is maybe that is just a lie I tell myself. Right. It's probably doing more harm than good. Yes. So for all of us listeners out there, stop that. Uh, And the other question I want to ask you about this is, why do people have problems staying asleep? Okay, so there's a lot of the same reasons why people can't fall asleep initially to this. So, however, what I see most contributing um, for the mid-evening awakenings and not being able to fall back asleep is people will find themselves in the middle of the night with worry and anxiety that just flooded their minds. So something to keep in mind, though, is going back to that 90-minute sleep cycle concept, what happens at the end of each of the 90-minute cycles is the tendency to ever so slightly and quickly wake up before going into another 90-minute cycle. So waking up in the middle of the night is actually normal. It's healthy. But it's around this time that people may find themselves awake, and because they have a lot on their mind, their brain starts to go into overdrive and ruminate about those worries instead of going back to sleep immediately. And so also, you know, the other common reason for those, the difficulties of falling back to sleep is people will have the tendency to look at their phones or clocks to check what time it is. and. That alone, you know, like like we mentioned before, can make a huge impact on our ability to fall back asleep because of what that light exposure is doing to our brain. Yes, and I've had two more more geriatric, I'll call them, patients come in and say, I can't stay asleep because I have to go to the bathroom all the time. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had that experience with people? Absolutely. And again, it's it's a... It's normal, it's common. I think what isn't uh, so normal and common is the inability to fall back asleep after those bathroom breaks, Um, and that can be kind of the frustrating thing. And associated with that is kind of the angst or the anxiety or frustration of knowing that you're up now and you're assuming you're going to have a hard time falling back asleep, and that's sort of serves as a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So if you're anxious or frustrated, you're waking yourself up even more. And so a lot of, and we'll go into this in a little bit, but um, a lot of this is being able to kind of change your thought process and say, okay, you know, I woke up likely because I just finished a sleep cycle. I need to get up to use the restroom um, and I'll fall back asleep in a few minutes and it's okay. That's a great belief frame because what we tell ourselves is what you said, sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it often happens, and then we keep telling ourselves the same thing, and we inherit the problem over and over and over. Mm -hmm. So if I hear you correctly, time to change the internal dialogue. Absolutely. Okay, well, we are coming up on a break, and listeners, we will be back with Dr. Jessica Bergstrom talking about the ever-all-important topic, sleep. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. 
From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, listeners, to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. We are here this morning talking about a really important topic, sleep. And by the way, how we sleep affects our mood, our attitude, and our relationships. So we are here with Dr. Jessica Bergstrom, and I want to ask you, Dr. Bergstrom, what are sleep disorders? Sleep disorders are basically a set of dysfunctions related to sleep or wakefulness that really vary in presentation, severity, and causes. So some of the main ones, and I won't go into, you know, very much detail for these, but restless leg syndrome is one, um, and that's kind of characterized by almost an irresistible urge to move the legs, typically in the evenings. Um, Jet lag um, is actually a sleep disorder. Uh, so is narcolepsy, right? Narcolepsy is um, an overwhelming daytime drowsiness where oftentimes people will, will literally fall asleep. Um, night terrors is another. Sleepwalking is another. Uh, the big one, too, is uh, obstructive sleep apnea. Um, and then, of course, insomnia um, is one of the biggest, most common sleep disorders. I think of narcolepsy as falling asleep in your soup. I've always had that <laughs> mental image. I just oh, got that I, visual. I think that's probably not an accurate visual, but it, uh, I find it amusing. So, I'm really curious about what exactly causes a sleep disorder. So because there's actually quite a few different sleep orders, there's quite a few causes for them that can differ for each. Um, so, for example, obstructive sleep apnea is largely caused by a physical process going on with one's breathing. Um, it's a physiological process associated with, um, you know, the, the body. So, um, you know, so with um, – it has to do with the muscles back in the throat and they close, and so that – 
causes a person to to literally stop breathing in the middle of the night. And one of the things that I do when I first assess for insomnia, when I I talk with people for the first time who have sleep issues, is I ask them, you know, have you been diagnosed with sleep apnea before? Um, and, And I do a screener for that because that often is one of the most common uh, reasons why people have sleep issues. You know, they'll say something like, you know, I was in bed, I, I, I think I was asleep for eight or nine hours, but just during the day, I'm still so tired. And that can be a very strong indication that there's something going on and that could be sleep apnea. Um, so, you know, while restless leg syndrome, syndrome's ideology is a completely different medical condition. So, but I would say one of the most prevalent sleep disorders is insomnia, and, and the biggest cause for insomnia, uh, I would say, would be a few things. The, the behavioral and also the cognitive, the thought processes we engage in. So some common problematic behaviors that serve to cause and maintain insomnia would be, you know, like taking too long of naps during the day, um, not having a consistent sleep schedule, or drinking too much caffeine, um, you know, that the LED light exposure at night, making the error of getting into bed too early to, you know, just be in bed to watch TV, read, or do some work on the laptop. And then some of the cognitive factors that cause and maintain insomnia can include distorted beliefs about sleep. So some examples are, you know, you need eight hours of sleep or the day is going to be ruined or, you know, having too much anxiety about our sleep in general or telling yourself that you have no control over your sleep. Um, so, and there is a type of treatment that addresses these factors, these, these behavior and cognitive factors, and that's called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And so it intervenes on both of those domains. And we can talk a little bit more about that if we have time later. Yeah. So you've alluded to sleep anxiety a couple times. And would you explain that to us in a little more depth? Because the idea of just being anxious about going to sleep in and of itself is a topic that I don't think many people think about. Absolutely, and it's so common, too. So, yes, sleep anxiety, or another term I like to call sleep performance anxiety, is the result of finding yourself in a pattern of not being able to sleep each night because you're developing and worrying about the sleep. So, they, you know, people will worry they'll continue to not perform sleep well enough. And so bedtime can actually be quite anxiety-provoking because of that. And so some common sleep anxiety people will develop are thoughts that, oh, I'm never going to fall asleep, or, oh, here goes another sleepless night, or I just don't, you know, I, I just know I won't get enough sleep tonight. I have no control over my insomnia. And so what this does is a few things. So First of all, anxiety amps people up physiologically, right? So meaning your body is wide awake now due to the anxiety that you have about sleep, which, you know, again, ironically serves as that self-fulfilling prophecy for the person in really not being able to fall asleep soundly. And then the other thing that it serves is that bedtime is now paired with the association of anxiety. So Sometimes it it becomes even as extreme as to associating your own bed with anxiety because you're telling yourself you're not going to be performing sleep well. So the key thing here with sleep anxiety is to eliminate the worry over not sleeping. 
And so in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, a lot of the work involves some reframing your thoughts, changing your relationship with sleep so that anxiety and worry is not playing such a strong factor in it, thus calming your angst and promoting better sleep. And there's a little thing called adrenaline. And <laughs> adrenaline kind of is produced when we are anxious. Exactly, and yes. That is a, like a mild amphetamine, a mild stimulant, uh, depending on how much anxiety you have. It could be a lot. And I can just imagine how if we have sleep anxiety, the adrenaline is released and then it's practically impossible to go to sleep because you're on a stimulant. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's um, it's doing more harm than good in those states. It's it's stressful. Yeah, there's all kinds of apps for this kind of stuff, but I'd like to address that in a little bit. And there's so many challenges in our life that it can affect our sleep. Can you talk to us about how stress affects sleep? Well, and I think that goes exactly into what you were just referring to, adrenaline stress plays a huge role in our ability to sleep. So the way our human bodies and mind function is to be attuned to the threat in our environment. So whether it was a tiger back in primal days or now that stressful work meeting or the argument with your spouse, maybe you know the aging parent you're now the caregiver for, our brain and body don't know the difference between what immediately needs to be addressed in the middle of the night or, you know, or something we can put aside for the next day or what is actually deemed warranted to stress about. So, like you had mentioned, anxiety, well, anxiety trumps sleep and can take over in trying to tune in to those perceived threats. And so further, and this is what you described before, with stress comes the fight-or-flight response in, in that surge of adrenaline release in the body. And so uh, all these physiological processes, they're arousing the body to be very awake, and it's un- you're unable to relax enough to fall asleep. Yes, and I'm often so curious about uh, sleep remedies, which we're going to talk about in a second, because so many people think, I'll just take a pill. And mm-hmm. it'll all go away. And as I said, we'll come to that in a, in a few minutes. And I think that most of us realize that caffeine, alcohol, and nicotine can negatively impact our sleep. Could you comment on that? Definitely. So alcohol technically is a sedative. And so it may seem quite easy to fall asleep after consuming a few, but being sedated is not the same thing as sleeping. So, and it also interferes with REM sleep as well as a process called the alcohol rebound effect. So this process is when after having a few drinks, you know, like I said, it feels quite easy to fall asleep, but a few hours after, typically about three or four hours later, after your body metabolizes that alcohol, you wake up and your alert state actually rebounds higher than it was before, thus making it difficult to fall back asleep. So alcohol really does not help in any sort of way. And now, nicotine actually acts as a stimulant in some ways. So, although for smokers it may seem like they're able to relax after the first few inhales, but really what this could be is the relaxation is more associated with the physiological craving of needing that cigarette diminishing. And then um, you asked about caffeine. So, caffeine obviously is a stimulant. Um, 
And it stays in the system a lot longer than, than folks realize. So the half-life, meaning uh, the amount of time half of the substance takes to metabolize out of our body, for caffeine, it's actually five to seven hours. So that means after five to seven hours after you've you know, had your cup of coffee, half of it is still very much in your system and suppressing your brain from being able to sleep. Well, that's interesting Thanks. because I had a patient the other day tell me uh, she drinks six and a half cups of coffee every morning. Oh, my gosh. I know. That's what I thought. <laughs> and we can really get addicted to caffeine. Yeah. Obviously, it's a drug. Nicot- mm-hmm. What? It's a drug, yeah. It is a drug. And caffeine's that upper, like, okay, I wake up, I turn on the coffee pot, and I got a function and I can't loll around in the morning petting teddy bear and biscuity bear. Or, and other people have their own little rituals. So i got to get up, and coffee is what I tell myself um, will get me going and on the road. And I think that this is so true. If we drive on the freeway or on the roads, how many people in the morning are drinking a cup of coffee? At least that's what we it's think. It's so true. It's so true. And there's actually studies that show... One of the best things that you can do, the most effective thing to help you um, awaken is actually expose yourself to sunlight, and that was shown to be more effective than caffeine was. Now, that's fascinating. So for those of you who are listening who live in Oregon or Washington State, um, <laughs> time to maybe, you can get a sunlight, <laughs> Yes, a, uh, a, a, an electric sunlight, and that will probably help you wake up. And the other thing is that a lot of people that I treat drink themselves to sleep. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's a stupor, but they come home from work and they start drinking wine. And then Mm -hmm. they cook with wine and then they drink wine while they're cooking. And then they have an after dinner glass of something. Doesn't necessarily mean they're alcoholics. But... um, that, I guess, negatively impacts our sleep also. Absolutely. Yep. That goes into um, how it affects uh, REM sleep and then also that alcohol rebound effect. Um, I see that in with patients. Yeah. And, and I love what you said about um, nicotine. And nicotine, have, being a, a past smoker who stopped like 30 years ago, Oh, I, I didn't remember. know that about you. <laughs> yeah. I remember the cravings um, in any time of the night, before bed, after bed, waking up in the morning, the first thing you reach for is a cigarette, and that amps you up, and that is a total habit, and it's a, like a little amphetamine upper, just kind of like caffeine is, and Having a cigarette releases those cravings for it, but then you have mm-hmm. another craving, and that's the cycle. Yep. So I hope our listeners really are in tune with what these substances can do to our sleep and our brain and how they are just contraindicated, that's a big word, uh, for healthy sleep. And we're coming up on a break Listeners, we're talking about insomnia and sleep problems with Dr. Jessica Bergstrom on Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio, and we will be back with you in a few moments. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, sounds good. Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you. Listeners to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio, we are here with Dr. Jessica Bergstrom talking about sleep. Now, I remember this patient telling me that she, when she was a little girl, her parents used to give her a sandwich before she went to sleep. It's not like it used to. And I thought, wow, I wonder, and, and that had become a habit for her. Texas. And... Mm-hmm. But Angie was having problems with sleep. Do you have any thoughts about how eating large meals or a snack like that within two hours of bedtime can affect one's sleep? Sure. So I'll go into this in a little detail. So foods can play an important role in our sleep ability, not only the types of foods, but the timing and the quantity, so kind of like what you implied. So, you know, there's been a lot of conflicting research about what's right. Um, You know, in one study, eating high carbs and low fat was shown to decrease your deep non-REM sleep, but actually it increased the amount of REM sleep compared to a low-carb, high-fat diet. Um, That said, there's, there's also a lot out there about certain foods that are said to promote sleep. So, to preface this, Three things to keep in mind. The amino acid tryptophan, the neurotransmitter serotonin, and then melatonin. So low levels of serotonin are shown to interfere with sleep. Tryptophan increases serotonin, thus promoting sleep, and then melatonin obviously also promotes sleep. So eating complex carbs like whole grains, popcorn, oatmeal before bed can actually help versus, you know, refined carbs like uh, bread, pasta, cookies, because that shows to decrease that serotonin, which, remember, low levels of serotonin impairs your sleep. So complex carbs is good. Now, healthy fats like almonds and walnuts, as well as fruits like raspberries, bananas, and kiwis, those contain melatonin. And so that hormone, um, you know, helps regulate our sleep cycle. And then lean proteins like cottage cheese, Milk, tuna, turkey, those have tryptophan, which helps promote sleep because of 
what it does to um, increasing serotonin. So, of course, always consult with your medical doctor to determine you know, the right plan for you because everyone's different in their personal health needs. But, you know, rule of thumb, um, healthy carbs, healthy lean proteins, some fruit can be helpful. And then, um, you know, it's pretty basic. Avoid being too full and being yeah, too hungry and uh, be mindful of not having too much of a high-carb diet before sleep. And, and, flow, uh, and sugar uh, is a killer because sugar, it's an upper. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah. yeah. it'll, yeah, it'll wake you up and then you'll crash and then you'll have some more and it'll wake up and then crash. So sugar before bed, yeah. in my knowledge, yeah. is not healthy either. My was a Correct. And try to on, on that, Yeah, and on that kind of idea. Do you have any opinions about exercising before bedtime? Yeah, so I'm a huge advocate for exercise. I'm a CrossFit athlete, so I say exercise is great for, you know, all the well-known reasons for our physical, our mental, our cognitive health. You know, studies have shown that being active improves our immune system, it decreases inflammation, it decreases depression and anxiety, and it even shows to improve cognitive, cognitive functioning, um, actually especially helping slow down the process of dementia, but it also helps with promoting a better night's sleep. Specifically, exercise has been found to increase the amount of sleep time, especially with non-REM sleep. And so, no surprise, it works the other way, too, with less sleep the night before exercise intensity was less as well. Um, having said that, though, while exercise does great things for sleep, the caveat is don't exercise at least two to three hours before bedtime. So, two reasons for this. Uh, number one, it takes a while for the body to physiologically calm down from that exercise, and then also because the body's core temperature rising from that exercise, it, it needs time to drop down again in order to promote falling asleep. It, it's, um, it's kind of amazing how much a difference it makes with just a few degrees in core body temperature. So keep that in mind with exercise um, at least two to three hours before bedtime. And listeners, exercise, some kind of exercise. Take a walk. Get out of uh, what you're doing. I know that many people where I work, when they have a few moments, they go outside for even five minutes and take a little walk around the building. It can be really healthy. Now, Dr. Bergstrom, I don't know if you have patients that do this, but many of mine tell me that when they can't sleep at night, they end up taking a nap during the day. And I'm just wondering well, what your views are about in. napping Somehow during they would the day. <laughs> so naps can be great, right? We all love naps. Uh, for some people, it can temporarily give a boost of energy when they're needing it. Uh, for some people, they may, you know, versus they may feel tired upon you know, awakening from that nap. The general rule of thumb I give to my patients is if you have to nap, don't nap for more than 25 minutes. And the reason is once you go past 25 minutes of napping, you're now going into deeper stages of sleep, which then takes away from your sleep need at night, which affects your ability to sleep later that evening. So it's more about the larger landscape of, of keeping a consistent sleep schedule which can be impacted by taking too long a nap um, or taking a nap too late in the day because it takes away that sleep need. So really think of naps as the equivalent of snacking. So having too big of a snack or too late in the day takes away our hunger for dinner. 
And I know that for the geriatric community, that a lot of them have just reversed their sleep cycle. So they can't sleep at night, but they have maybe one or two naps during the daytime, and it just messes them up. So, yeah, there's a lot of changes. Yeah. And um, I've also heard that sleep can be affected by anxiety and depression. What is your experience with this? Yeah, that's an interesting thing being studied right now. So we know that anxiety can cause difficulties with being able to fall and stay asleep because of, you know, that excessive worry, the rumination, the the heightened physiological state of anxiety. And with depression, it can go either way, right? So you you either sleep too much because sleep is your emotional escape from pain, or you can't sleep enough because there's that ruminative process going on as well there. The majority of my patients coming into treatment will have sleep issues, and this way this would be called secondary insomnia. Um, but a person is having trouble sleeping because of the depression and anxiety causing it. However, what's also being acknowledged in research is that sleep issues can exacerbate or even cause anxiety and depressive symptoms. You know, and I see this because sleep is an important force. And when we lose grip of that night after night, it really affects a person's emotional well-being. So it's going to cause mood symptoms. And, you know, it also has to do with the brain's inability to receive enough emotional restorative sleep at night, which then can leave a person feeling, you know, more emotionally unrestored, more uh, anxious, more depressed. Very, very interesting. And... Now that we know about all the we problems that we could possibly have with sleep, right. I want to ask you, for our listeners, so daunting. What, what is good sleep hygiene? Okay, so good sleep hygiene basically involves utilizing proper patterns of behavior that are conducive for good sleep. So for sleep hygiene to be effective, there needs to be consistency, right? So... And if these are new patterns of behavior you're not used to, really stick with it. Like any new behavior, it takes time and patience to make a habit out of it. Um, you know, you're, and you may, I'll go into the sleep hygiene topics in a second, but you don't have to, you know, use all of them. But you take a handful of things and really just consistently stick with that because that can make or break the quality of your sleep in the long run. So these sleep hygiene techniques can include having a regular sleep schedule of going to bed and waking up at the same time every day, even on weekends. Um, if you can't sleep for more than 20 minutes, get out of bed and do something boring until you're ready to fall back asleep. Um, like we said before, don't take naps more than 25 minutes. Uh, try creating a to-do list or worry list prior to bed, just so, you know, in order to clear your mind of worries. Limit the caffeine. I tell people, try not to consume caffeine after 1 o'clock. I'm pretty conservative about that. Have a buffer zone at night that allows kind of that space to calm the mind and body down from your busy day. Uh, Try to make your bedroom as dark and as quiet as possible. Um, Limit the alcohol and nicotine. Eat well. Exercise. Again, uh, you know, nothing two to three hours before. 
And I would say one of the most difficult things for people to change to with sleep hygiene is only use the bed for sleep and sex. That means no more reading, no more watching TV, no more being on the phone, doing your taxes, whatever it is, uh, eating, no more of those wakeful activities while physically in bed. Otherwise, what happens is your brain begins to associate all of those wakeful activities with bed and not necessarily sleep. So this goes the same for laying in bed for more than 20 minutes of not being able to sleep because guess what? That is a wakeful activity. Tossing and turning is a wakeful activity. So, again, get out of bed and do something incredibly boring. Like, I don't know, read the oven manual. <laughs> so having said that, though, um, my disclaimer to insomnia patients is sleep hygiene alone does not effectively cure chronic insomnia. So it's really cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia because, as you know, the sleep hygiene in it is referred to as stimulus control, meaning you're controlling the stimuli and the environment patterns oh, yeah. of behavior around you to help improve your sleep. Um, but there also needs to be the component of what's called sleep restriction. We can go into that another time. And then also, you know, restructuring your thoughts around your sleep for chronic insomnia to be effectively treated. I'm, I'm aware of our time, and gosh, our time is almost up. I just wanted to ask you quickly, what do you think about sleep apps? Because I have people who just love them. Yeah, sleep apps are, you know, I think they're great. I have no personal financial or professional obligation to any of these, but I would like to mention CBTI Coach. So, again, it's Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. That's an app that I recommend. Other apps are called Calm, Headspace, Breathe, Insight Timer. Um, you know, I think that there is some validity in the ability for sleep apps to be effective because of what it supports regarding, you know, relaxation and mindfulness techniques. But I also think a large component of it has to do with the association the sleep app begins to have with sleep. So for a person using the app regularly, it becomes a regular bedtime habit for bedtime use, thus creating a healthy association with sleep. And so the things we can pair with bedtime can help create a stronger association in telling the bed it's time to sleep. After nice well, listeners, listeners, there you have it from a sleep specialist, and there's so much more I wanted to ask you, which we don't have time to get to, that if you want to sleep like Teddy Bear and Biscuity Bear, take Dr. Bergstrom's suggestion so you won't count sheep, but instead <laughs> you'll sleep. Put Dr. Bergstrom's suggestions into practice. Dr. Bergstrom, it's been such a delight to have you as today's guest, and thank you so much for being here at Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. And well, thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Remember, You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.